Welcome to Built to Go, a van live podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 196, and we're going to talk a lot about DEF, D-E-F, diesel exhaust fluid. What is it? What's it for? And why do you want to avoid it? We're also going to talk about some new laws, or not-so-new laws in Chicago, that might surprise you regarding vans. Should you warm up your engine in the winter or just start driving? And a place to visit where a mysterious force will propel your vehicle, even if it's off. Yes, we'll talk about that. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Very happy to have you listening to me once again. And I'm sorry it's a one-way conversation, but that's how it goes. So let the rambling commence. I recently had an incident with my van. I know you're shocked. I know you're all shocked that my diesel sprinter ambulance had a problem. I know. Who could have imagined it? This one, though, was the big one. Well, maybe not the biggest one, but it was the one that most people who own sprinters dread. And it is the countdown of death. And let me explain all this. And in order to explain the countdown of death, uh, the countdown of death, I need to talk about DEF, which is diesel exhaust fluid. So here's the deal. In the United States, in 1973, President Nixon signed the EPA, which is the Environmental Protection Act. And because of that, the federal government regulates things like emissions from tailpipes. Now, diesel emissions historically have been terrible for the environment. The stuff that comes out of a diesel exhaust pipe is the worst in terms of global warming and acid rain and lung illnesses because of all the particulate matter. And so over time, Technology has been invented to help deal with these things. I mean, we have diesel particulate filters now, which do just what you might think. They filter out particulates. And we've reduced the amount of sulfur in diesel fuel, which helps keep the acid rain-causing chemicals down. But one of the newer things we've done since about 2010 is we've started adding urea to the exhaust stream. Now, urea is, yes, an ingredient in urine, although the urea that is used in DEF, diesel exhaust fluid, is synthetically made. It's, it's actually a, a pretty famous experiment. If you're a chemistry buff, look up how urea is made synthetically. It's, it's kind of interesting. DEF is a solution of 32.5% urea that is stored in a tank in all modern diesel vehicles that drive on the roads, And it is sprayed into the exhaust at a really high temperature. It's when the exhaust hits 1,400, 1,600 degrees, pretty darn high. This stuff is sprayed into the exhaust, and it goes through the catalytic converter and turns a lot of these nasty chemicals that come out of your exhaust pipe into stuff that's less nasty, like water and nitrogen. It's pretty cool when you look at how much safer diesel exhaust is with this stuff added. So... Sounds like a good idea, right? I mean, this isn't such a terrible thing. Except that, if you think about it, well, DEF, the fluid, costs money. And it adds complexity. It's about $4 a gallon to buy this stuff. And while you can get 300 miles off of a gallon, more or less, 
it still adds up. So you have that extra expense, plus you have the extra weight of the tank, and you have a pump that pumps it into the exhaust stream, and you have to have a heater because this stuff freezes at 12 degrees Fahrenheit. And the problem, well, the biggest problem is that the EPA realized that there was no incentive for the average driver to spend the extra money needed in order to have a DEF system. So the EPA did two things. One was it required all vehicle manufacturers of on-road vehicles to include a DEF system. Okay, that was the first step. Some of these manufacturers cheated a bit, and there was a huge, well-known class action suit against Mercedes-Benz, and they had to come back and repair things. We're going to ignore all that for now. But you have to understand the reason you see DEF in all diesel vehicles sold in the last 14, 15 years is because the federal government is requiring it. Okay, you bought the truck, it came with the system. What if you just don't fill the tank? Or what if you remove the tank and you remove all that stuff? Well, there are sensors in your vehicle required by law that will detect if there's a problem with the DEF system. And those problems can be as simple as you've run out of fluid. Uh, in my Sprinter, it doesn't have a gauge. <laughs> it, I have no idea about how much diesel exhaust fluid I have in the vehicle. It's not until I'm about to run out that a light comes on the dashboard, and then I've got a precious little amount of time to refill that back up, which I think is kind of dumb. In more modern vehicles, there is a separate gauge for DEF, and I think that's required. The other thing the federal government said is you have to make it so that the vehicle will not operate if there's something wrong with the DEF system. So how do you do that? Well, you don't want the vehicle just to die, right? Like the sensor finds out you've run out of fluid. You don't want the vehicle just to die. No, no. So what you do is you give it 10 more starts. And that's what's called the countdown of death. If you forget to fill up your DEF and you ignore that warning light on the dashboard, eventually you're going to get this countdown timer that says you only have 10 more restarts of the vehicle left. And after you go through those 10, your vehicle's a paperweight. It will not start. The only people who can start it are dealerships and high-end repair shops that actually have the software needed to reset the computer. And I believe it's a $250 fee just to reset that without fixing anything. So uh, that's not great. Now, I've heard that some other vehicles won't disable your vehicle entirely. They'll just put it in limp mode, which means much less performance. You might be able to roll along at 30 miles an hour. To me, that makes a lot more sense than just killing the vehicle outright. Because here's my situation. I'm driving down the road at highway speed for maybe half an hour, and boom, this light comes on in the dashboard. Ten more restarts left. Now, I got no warning about this. There was no sign that anything was wrong. In fact, because I have a Bluetooth scanner where I can read the codes in the computer, I actually knew what my DEF level was, and it was nearly full. So I wasn't out of DEF. So why was my vehicle telling me I had only so many restarts? <laughs> well, remember I said that DEF freezes at 12 degrees Fahrenheit? It was below zero in Chicago for quite a few days. And apparently, my DEF pump froze. Some fluid got in the DEF pump and froze. And for whatever reason, and I don't actually understand this, the heater, which is in the pump, I mean, that's where the heater is, didn't defrost it. 
and that meant that the pressure of the DEF in the system was below a threshold for long enough that it triggered the countdown timer. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's bad. So I was lucky in that I was just doing a day trip and returning home. So I went to the dealership and they charged me $250 to diagnose the problem, which they found out was the frozen pump. And the fix was they left my van inside overnight and then it was fine. (laughs) That's it. They didn't fix anything. This one little stupid problem cost me two days and 250 bucks. And theoretically, nothing was wrong. Now, what I don't like about the story is that it kind of doesn't make sense, right? If, if there's a heater in the DEF system so that when you're driving and it's below 12 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a lot of places, I mean, most of Canada is below 12 degrees Fahrenheit all winter long, you don't want this stuff freezing. So the heater's supposed to keep it going. Why didn't that happen in my case? Is something broken? According to the diagnostics, the heater works, the pump works, the pipes aren't frozen, everything's fine. So I don't really have a good narrative there. One thing, now you understand DEF, and now you understand the problems that can happen with it. If you do have a DEF system, here are some best practices. God, I hate that term, and I just used it. What is wrong with me? But uh, here are some best practices for owning a DEF system. First off, get good DEF. Now, you can get DEF either at, like, Walmart or an auto parts store or at a truck stop pump. A lot of pumps that service trucks will have diesel and DEF right at the pump. I like doing that. To me, that's the easiest way. But you want to use fairly decent quality DEF. DEF lasts about two years in the bottle. If it's been out in the sun, it only lasts about a year. So that's not great. Walmart has the cheapest DEF, and it cycles through so quickly that you know it's always fresh. So that's good. Gas stations and such, I don't know. That, that might sit around for a while. So it's, it's a little sketchy. But if you have bad quality DEF your system might just say, nope, that doesn't count. We're going to start the countdown, and uh, that's no good. And that will happen if you do, (laughs) some people have done this, they will pee in the DEF tank because they think, oh, Urea, I can make that myself. Yeah, don't do that. That's a complete, it doesn't work. It will set the system off. And and also, if your system's a little bit low and you think, I just want to stretch this a little bit and you pour some water in there, yeah, don't do that either. The sensors in there detect the percentage of urea in the mix, and uh, you don't want to mess with that. So use good quality DEF, not necessarily what the dealership wants to sell you, which I think Mercedes is like $25 a gallon or something. It's crazy. Most DEF is about $4 a gallon. Next, in the winter, and I just learned this, do not fill your DEF tank. You want your DEF tank to be at about 50% for two reasons. One is that if the DEF freezes, being mostly water, it will expand. You need to give it space to expand into. And if your tank is full, there's nowhere for it to go. And while these tanks are designed not to burst, why not not encourage that, you know? Uh, it's a good idea to only have them half full. But the real reason is that Remember the heater I talked about? The heater's going to spend a lot less time heating up your DEF if there's only half as much. And you may avoid a problem like I had, where I had a full DEF tank that had been sitting in sub-zero temperatures for a while, and then I did a number of short trips. So little trips, like three or four minute trips. So I was just going to the grocery store. That probably was what caused my problem because the system didn't have enough time to heat up and flow the def properly so i was actually moving frozen def through the system and and anyway that's the best story i can come up with i I hope that's actually what happened i consider myself very lucky because i'm about to drive to florida 
uh, which is a fairly long drive. And if this had happened on the way, well, I'd be having a very different trip. I'd be spending the entire trip looking for a Mercedes dealer who could reset my countdown of death or the countdown of death, as the case may be. So those of you with gasoline engines right now are probably feeling pretty smug in your decision. And those of you with diesels are now like, uh-oh, am I driving a ticking time bomb? <laughs> uh, yeah, might be. I mean, that's the problem with this thing is there's no warning. It can just happen. And then you have no choice but to find a dealer or somebody who specializes in sprinter vans. If you just go to your normal mechanic, they are not going to have the equipment needed to clear these codes. You certainly can't do it with any kind of code scanner that you can buy. You need like a $20,000 scanner that has a $500 a month subscription or whatever crazy rates they're charging. Anyway, diesel has a lot of torque and it does in fact have more energy per gallon than gasoline. But I'm going to tell you, if you have a choice, I think you're going to be a lot better off with gasoline. Thank you to Repro and Liz for becoming members of Built to Go, a van life podcast. If you'd like to help support the podcast, either with a one-time donation or becoming a member, you may do so at buymeacoffee.com slash built to go. That's two T's, not three, not one. And because of all you generous people who have done this, there are no ads on the podcast. And that makes me very happy. Van life news. So this isn't necessarily news, but it, it, it's something I discovered recently, and I think y'all should know about this. <laughs> so I live in Chicago, and Chicago has problems with parking, like any major city. There's no surprise there. But Chicago has some very specific laws that affect van life people. And let me just read you two of these. Number one. The law prohibits the standing or parking of any vehicle six feet or greater in height within 20 feet of any crosswalk, alley, commercial driveway, or fire lane at any time. So if you have a high top van in Chicago, you have to park at least 20 feet from all of these things. Crosswalk, alley, commercial driveway, like entrance to a Target or a gas station, or fire lane. You have to be 20 feet from either side of a fire hydrant or the, the, the zone around the fire hydrant. This basically limits parking to very, very few areas in the city. And uh, I'm fortunate that I have parking that is designated where I live at my condo and I don't have to park on the street because it's hard enough to find parking for these things. Finding parking in that narrow range would be very, very difficult. Now, if you have a low roof, yeah, you might get away with it if you're lower than six feet, but I know even a lot of low roofs are higher than six feet. Do I think anybody's ever going to enforce this ordinance? I don't know, but that is the law. The other one, which is a little bit trickier, is it is prohibited to park any truck, van, tractor, truck, tractor, semi-trailer, trailer, recreational vehicle more than 22 feet in length a self-contained motorhome, bus, taxi cab, commercial vehicle, or livery vehicle on any residential street at any time. <laughs> if your van is more than 22 feet long, you literally can't park on any residential street anywhere in Chicago legally. Now, 22 feet is a bit longer than your normal Sprinter 144. But if you have the 170, you're too long. You can't park a Sprinter 170 on any residential street 
in the city of Chicago. So if you have some friends who live in Rogers Park and they have an, a house even or an apartment, you can't just park in front of their house. It is illegal. Again, how often is this enforced? I don't know. I do know in the neighborhood I lived in before I moved to where I live now, there was a guy with a big pickup truck. It was a four-door pickup truck with an eight-foot bed, and he got tickets all the time. And he had a big sign on the back of his truck trying to educate the ticket givers that his truck was exempt somehow. I don't actually know how it was exempt, but what does this mean? Does this mean you should avoid Chicago? Ah, that's up to you. Chicago's a wonderful city and you can come have a great time. It does mean there are problems parking here, but I think if you dig into the laws in any major city, you're going to find very similar things. What they're trying to prevent is people from buying an RV and parking it on the street and leaving it there for six months. Us overnight people are really not the issue. And I think you'll probably be left alone. But if you get a cop who's on your case for whatever reason or has some kind of a quota to fill or whatever, yeah, technically you and your 170 Sprinter are not allowed to park in nearly all of Chicago. So, uh, yeah, there's that. <laughs> Tech Talk. I know I've talked about this before, but given the weather... It, it always comes up, so I'm going to talk about it again, and that is the age-old question of should you warm up your engine before you take off on really cold days? Two-part answer. If your vehicle was built before 1992, or it has a carburetor, those are almost synonymous, but not quite, you should warm up your vehicle for a few minutes before you take off because carburetors have a tendency to freeze up. Now, a carburetor is this thing that mixes air with gasoline and if moisture gets in there and cold weather can cause moisture to gather in there, yeah, it can freeze up and then your car is in trouble. So you want to make sure that your engine's warm enough for hot air to go in there. But the vast majority of us are not dealing with carburetors and we have modern engines where all this stuff is controlled by computers. And it turns out the computer knows it's cold. So the computer adjusts. So the advice now is turn your vehicle on. And if you have a diesel, be sure to warm up those glow plugs and then drive. Don't wait. I mean, you can let it go for 10 or 15 seconds or whatever, make sure everything's fine. But the advice is to start driving as soon as possible, not let it sit. And the reasoning behind that is that when the engine hasn't reached operating temperature, it's running very inefficiently. A lot of the fuel being burned is being used to generate heat to get the engine to operating temperature. And you want that period of time to be as little as possible. So by driving gently away, You'll get the engine up to temperature as fast as possible, and you'll actually be heading where you want to go, so you're not wasting fuel. Now, does this mean you should never turn on your van in the morning and warm it up while you're making breakfast or whatever? No, that's a completely different thing. That's idling. You can idle on cold winter days, and that's okay. You're going to be wasting a lot of fuel. That's, that's the trade-off. And, uh, you know, that you could potentially damage a vehicle if you let it idle too long. But I'm not telling you that, oh my God, it's 20 degrees out, I'm freezing, and you want to start the van and warm it up while you're putting away your sleeping bag and stuff. I think that's fine. I think that's actually normal and good. <laughs> so go ahead and start driving. Just be gentle. You know, you don't have to like stomp on the gas and burn out and leave rubber on the coldest days of the year. Product review. 
So I'm going to do a follow-up product review. I've already reviewed this, but now that I've had it for a couple of years, I can review it much betterer. And that is the Vivor diesel heater, five kilowatts. So yes, I have a cheap Chinese diesel heater. Unless you've just stumbled into van life, you've probably heard of these things. They're fairly inexpensive heaters that you can put in your van and they burn diesel fuel to produce heat. And they're very good for van life because they don't take up that much space. And the heat that comes out is a nice, warm, dry heat. And they don't use that much diesel. They're better than propane in most cases, and they're fairly easy to install, sort of. Now, these diesel heaters are basically a ripoff copy of much more expensive heaters by Wabasto and Eberspacher, for example. But they're 10 times cheaper. So while some people don't want to get the knockoff, they want to get the original thing, in my experience, you will run into the same number of problems with them. You may get more support from the more expensive ones, but I see just as many people complaining about their Eberspatchers and Wabastos as I do about their cheap Chinese diesel heater. How do you buy a cheap Chinese diesel heater? Well, there's 8 million of them. They all look kind of the same. There's 2, 3, 5, and 8 kilowatt models. I've even seen some 12s. For my size van, I looked and it looks like a five kilowatt, which is the most common size, is fine for a 144. If you have a bigger van, you might want to go up to an eight. And if you have a smaller van, like an NV200, you might want to go down to a two or three. I decided to buy a Vivor because Vivor is actually a brand. There, there is a company there. They're Chinese products, again, these are all knockoff products, but they sell a whole bunch of things, and I think they're going to be around for a while. And that means I might be able to get some support. Also, they had a lot of reviews. Most of the reviews were very good, but what I liked was that they had a lot of them. It wasn't they just had three reviews and this company is going to be gone in two weeks, which happens a lot with these products. I installed this thing and spent a lot of time installing it. I took my sweet time. I watched hours and hours and hours of YouTube videos, and there are a lot of subtleties in installing one of these systems. I was very careful to follow all of those subtleties. I replaced the fuel line with a better quality fuel line that was re recommended by a lot of people. I made sure to mount the pump at an angle exactly as was suggested. And now that I've used this thing for a couple of years, I love it. I love this thing. I can get in my van at any time and press a button and I will have nice hot air coming out of a hose in five minutes. It really doesn't use that much diesel. I haven't noticed much difference with it. And boy, it keeps me warm in there. Sure, if the van's completely cold and I start it up, it might take half an hour to get really comfortable in there. But I can run it all night long. It doesn't use that much energy once it starts up. And what I really like about the Vivor is I haven't had a single problem with it. When I first installed it, I did have to prime it a few times. It takes a while to get the bubbles out of the fuel line, basically. And a couple times early on when I started it, it would fail. But it was just bubbles. That's all it was. And the way I fixed it was I just kept restarting it. And now it is just flawless. Now, mine was pretty standard. If you look at these things, mine wasn't anything special. It's what's called a separate type where it's not all built in one box. I mounted the fuel pump outside. Obviously, the exhaust is outside. The air intake is outside. There's some controversy about that, but I believe it should be outside, pointed away from your exhaust, of course. 
And the controller I have is the trapezoidal one. This is probably the thing you should look for the most is to get a good controller because some of the controllers are kind of crappy. The one I have is very, very good. It's easy to understand once you read the manual and uh, that's a little tricky. Vivor's manual is better than most. It has less badly translated English in it. So that's also a plus. And mine comes with a remote control. So if I'm in bed and I can't reach the heater and it's too hot, I can just turn it off from bed. That's my Chinese diesel heater. It's one of dozens and dozens, and many, many others of them probably work just as well. But I, I have to say that the one I installed has been great. So any of you who also bought that from links I've had in the past, I hope you're having the same experience. And I would share the link with you again, but uh, yeah, it's been discontinued. <laughs> At least the exact model I have has been discontinued. The new one has a an improved controller, supposedly, and there's an option that you can control the entire thing from your phone. So it'll have a Bluetooth module, and then you can control your entire heating from your phone. One thing to know if you're getting into this is these things typically do not use thermostats. You don't set the temperature at 70 or 25 or whatever. You set it on the number of times the pump will inject fuel per minute and that's called hertz <laughs> so you will be setting the hertz it doesn't matter you just think of it like a volume knob uh, you know maybe uh, depending on your controller six might be highest 0.1 would be lowest obviously 0.1 is going to give the lowest heat and six is going to give you the highest that's all there is to it you will get a sense for what you want to set that at but uh, it doesn't work on a normal thermostat and that throws some people off so anyway, I'll have a link in the show note to other Vivor diesel heaters that I think are primarily similar to mine. But yeah, two years in for a little over a hundred bucks, I have a solid, really reliable source of heat in my van. And in my case, my van came with a tap built in to the diesel tank. So all I had to do was connect it together. I didn't have to install a tank or anything. And uh, that will not be the case for all of you. Side note, if you have a gasoline engine, I recommend you install a diesel tank just for this. There are gasoline heaters out there. They tend to be much more expensive and burning gasoline is a little bit different than diesel. Gasoline's explosive. <laughs> diesel just burns. And uh, I don't know, I'm more comfortable with diesel in this application. Also, if you do have a tank, you're allowed to use off-road diesel for just your diesel heater. So that could save you some money. Tales from the Road. Way back in 1986, when I was a Boy Scout major at Salem College in Salem, West Virginia. Yes, it's true I said Boy Scout major because, uh, yeah, that was the name of the program, Youth Agency Administration. I was going to school to become a professional Boy Scout, and, uh, well, we see how that turned out. But one of the classes I had to take was camping, which kind of makes sense, sort of, except I had done all kinds of camping, so I don't know what they were going to teach me, but okay. Of course, instead of a thesis or writing a big paper, the final for camping was going camping, so we did. Now, the professor of this course, a wonderful guy named Sam, and uh, he has passed now, and I, I miss him, but he was, he was really an interesting guy. Sam owned a piece of hunting property near Beckley, West Virginia which is a fairly well-known camping area. And he said, well, let's just go out there. And I thought, oh, I mean, how much property can he own? Well, it turned out he owns several thousand acres. He, it was plenty for camping. And uh, not only that, you couldn't drive there. He owned one of those properties that wasn't on a road. So 
it was a 30 mile hike to get to the property and we did it you know we packed our packs as lightweight as possible and headed out there we were in extremely rural west virginia i mean there were no other people and some of the stuff we found was remarkable we saw Cecropia moth larvae, which is worth a Google. Cecropia moths are gigantic. They're like the size of a knockwurst. And they're all spiny and green, and they're just weird looking. And they, they form into these giant moths. That was pretty cool. We saw ruffed grouse and heard them. That also was pretty cool. And we found a crashed aircraft. <laughs> Apparently, the mountain we were on, some plane had crashed into it, and there were still parts of it there. In fact... Not knowing about Leave No Trace at that point, which seems weird that you're in a camping class that doesn't talk about Leave No Trace. We all took pieces of the airplane. Actually, does that count? Would that count as litter? <laughs> That's a complicated topic. Anyway, I did have a little tiny piece of aluminum from the plane for a long time. So we went out there and did total primitive camping, and it was wonderful. Very much out in nature. The mosquitoes weren't bad because it was in the fall, and uh, it was it was just a nice communal time for all of us. Well, we were all Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and some YMCA people, and, you know, we were into this stuff anyway. The only trouble came afterwards. We'd camped out there for two days, and it was time to walk back to the vehicles. Now, Sam was the only way, only one who knew where the van was that we were going to get to, because the van dropped us off and left and was going to pick us up somewhere else. So we were doing a linear hike. And uh, we had a lot of food left over. And I remember in particular, there was this one bag of potatoes that... A five-pound bag of potatoes that we hadn't touched. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, let's just, you know, put them in the woods. And because we're talking about 79 cents worth of potatoes here. This is 1986. This was not a lot of money. And one of the guys was like, no, 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 we can't waste food like that. We have to bring it back. And I'm thinking, got a big, long hike. Five pounds is a lot on a long hike. And it just doesn't make sense. So I'm like, all right, man, if you want to bring it back, that's fine. And then... As we're packing up, he's like, well, I didn't have any space in my pack. And he comes up behind me and opens my pack and stuffs these potatoes in my pack. And I already had extra stuff. <laughs> I was carrying some stuff for my, my tent mate because his backpack had broken and he couldn't carry as much stuff. So I had a very heavy pack. Now, I knew enough about pack weights and what you wanted and what you didn't want. At that point... I had a very good idea of what lifting 50 pounds felt like because we had 50 pound sandbags in our garage growing up. Doesn't matter where about that, but they, I knew what 50 pounds felt like and my pack weighed more than 50 pounds. And anybody who hikes will tell you that's crazy. But hike we did and I was in much better shape then. And people got tired very quick on the hike back and the refrain started to be, you guessed it, are we there yet? And Sam would turn around and look at the group and say, well, let's see, yep, two more miles, just two more miles. And then half an hour later, somebody would say, are we there yet? And he'd look around and say, yep, two more miles, just two more miles. And after a while, <laughs> we realized that, that was his way of handling the situation. Everything was two miles away. And we hiked for another four hours with him saying just two more miles so at the end of the hike everyone is exhausted and i'm fairly beat but i was proud of myself for being able to do a hike like that with that heavy of a pack and we had two vehicles we had a van and a pickup truck to haul all the packs and the guy who had stuffed my pack with potatoes his name was mitch was in the truck and he was helping to load packs and i went up and backed up to the truck so he could take my pack and he couldn't lift it. <laughs> My pack was too heavy for him to lift into the truck. 
And he looked at me and said, was your pack this heavy the whole time? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he didn't say anything. <laughs> and so I helped him push the backpack into the truck. And we drove back to college. And then I handed him the bag of potatoes and said, here you go. Enjoy them. A place to visit somewhere near you, unless you live in Illinois, is a, a magical place that maybe is called Gravity Hill or Spook Hill or Ghost Hill. There are hundreds of these all around the world, but not in Illinois. <laughs> See if you can guess why there aren't any in Illinois. Well, I'll tell you at the end. There's one in Florida. There's only one in Florida. Well, these are places where you can take your vehicle and put it in neutral and it will roll uphill. What force is causing this? I mean, they're all over the world. It's a fairly common phenomenon. I'll have a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia article that lists them all. I mean, there's hundreds of them in almost every state, in many, many countries. One of the most famous ones is in New Brunswick, Canada. And uh, yeah, I mean, this totally works. You take your vehicle there and you look around and you figure out which way is uphill. And then you put the vehicle in neutral, take your foot off the brake and gas, and it will roll uphill. Now, some people surmise that these places work because there is a big amount of magnetite at the top of the hill and it's pulling the vehicle up. So, okay, well, that makes sense, but it's pretty easy to test. Turns out that if you dump water on the ground on these gravity hills, it will also roll uphill. And, uh, well, last time I checked, magnets don't affect water very much. I'm sure they do at some subatomic level. Other folks have said that what's actually happening is that it's the ghosts of people who have died there who are pushing your vehicle. Often this comes with a story about a, a school bus crash or something. And then the creepy part of this is that if you take some baby powder and you sprinkle it over the back of your van or car or whatever you're driving, you can see the handprints of the kids who are pushing you up the hill. And guess what? That works too. Two. So what the heck's going on here? What is this mystery force? Well, I'm sure most of you have figured it out by now that the mystery force is called gravity. Yes, and I know it's just a theory, or, or so I'm told, but yet yeah, gravity is what's doing this. Because the problem isn't that you're rolling uphill. The problem is that you think it's uphill. And believing is seeing. You believe that's uphill, you're seeing the vehicle roll. But what you should be seeing is a realization that vehicles can't roll uphill. So if this vehicle's rolling, it's actually rolling downhill. And that's exactly what's going on in these locations. What is actually happening is that the horizon, which is our normal reference for steepness and up and down, is obscured somehow. In every single one of these places, there's something obscuring the horizon or something that is tricking us. It's an optical illusion. And all of these... And as for the little kids pushing you up the hill and why their handprints are on the back of your car, well, what's at the back of a car? A trunk, a hatchback, a door, something like that. Something you put your hands on. And yes, your fingerprints are there. And yes, if you put baby powder on your fingerprints, it's going to show up. <laughs> so, hey, go have some fun. Go see a gravity hill. It is a fairly cool thing to be fooled by this illusion. But yeah. It's just an illusion, and, uh, you know, you can make up ghost stories and scare people if you want. 
some of us more curious folk actually want to know what's really going on. Resource Recommendation So I was stumbling through YouTube videos, as I do often, and I found a video by a, a, a woman named Monique, and she is living in her, her 2019 Ford Transit Connect, and she has it built out very nice. But the reason she's in that Ford Transit Connect is because she used to be in a Buick Enclave, and, uh, well, this is why I want you to watch the video, because of what happened to her Enclave. Now, it's a 39-minute video. It's, it's kind of long, but I think it's worth watching because it teaches a number of things that are valuable to people building out their vans. The first and most obvious is she got in an accident and totaled her van. But how? It's kind of amazing. She took a wrong turn in a parking garage and hit a pole when she was turning around. You know, oh, darn, scratch the bumper kind of a thing. But it totaled the vehicle. It's a 2018 Buick Enclave, not an old vehicle. And the repairs were $18,000. The insurance company refused to repair it. And the reason is that, yeah, she scratched the bumper and broke the headlight and had to replace all that. But it had bent the frame. And it was $10,000 alone just to straighten the frame. So the insurance company said no. So they wrote her a check and she bought the Transit Connect. So that was an interesting lesson. But her interactions with the auto body shops were super interesting. Now, being a newer vehicle, I know it's an SUV, it had side airbags all down the back. And this turned out to be a major problem for her. She had removed the middle row of seats, which a lot of people do when they're in minivan or SUVs, and those were connected to the airbag system. So when she removed those, she did not put a resistor on the terminals. She just lived with the fact that her airbag light was broken. So as she drove around, the airbag light was on and, you know, what big, no big deal. What I don't think she realized is that her airbag system was disabled. It's not that that light was just on. It, her, she had disabled all her airbags in the entire vehicle, which is, which is a bad thing. So as she went to the auto body shop, she went to a bunch. It's, it's a long involved story, but many of them said, we can't work on your vehicle until you put the seats back because they need to reprogram the airbag system. See, when they work on your car, they accept some liability for the safety of the car afterwards, and they have to make sure it's safe to drive. And if the airbag light is on, they know the airbag system's not working, and they can't give you the car back. So she ran into that problem. Now, she finally worked out with the guy that, you know, there's nothing wrong with the system, it's just that the seat's out, and he was able to overcome that, and he's like, okay, it's fine. And then she mentioned that the driver's side seatbelt didn't work. Now, in her case, the seatbelt wouldn't retract. She pulled it out, and it just wouldn't go back. If, any, if this ever happens to you, just make sure you take apart all the molding and see if it's just kinked up. I mean, that's not that uncommon of a problem. But when she told the guy that, he refused to work on her vehicle. He basically said, uh, no, that's, that we, that's it. We can't fix that. And the problem was that they would have to replace the seatbelt and they would need to reprogram the computer in the vehicle to know that it had a new seatbelt. I'm not exactly sure how that works. And they couldn't do that without the back seat. Anyway, watch the video. You will learn a lot. It's, it's, it's interesting, all the stuff she went through. She, she doesn't have a great background in car mechanics. She didn't understand a lot of what was going on. But it doesn't matter because the story is what matters. And, and she's kind of fun to watch anyway, so... I'll have a link in the show notes for that. Her channel is called Simple Enough, and the name of the video is From Living in a Car to Living in a Basement, Totaled My Car Home. Yeah, it's, it's well worth watching here. So 
Again, word of warning to those of you building out minivans or other vehicles that have seats in the back and airbags in the back. Those airbags are a problem. Either consider doing a no build where you can make everything exactly the same as it was so you won't have any problems like this, or research how to terminate the connectors so that you don't disable your airbag, and then have a plan for how you're gonna deal with it if you wreck your car. Like, you know, if you have to take that vehicle to the body shop, they may refuse to work on it because the middle seats are missing. So, uh, you know, yikes, that could be a big pain in the butt. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 196. I appreciate you being here with me every week. I'm recording this episode a little bit early as I'm about to hop in my van and head to Florida. I'm actually going to go a day early so I can get out of these freezing temperatures just in case the death countdown comes back. Music, as always, is by Simon Wegg. And until next time, remember the words of Napoleon Hill, who said, Every adversity, every failure, every heartache, carries with it the seed of an equal or greater benefit.